Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Janitors at Denver International Airport went on a one-day strike last Friday. On today's show, we learn more about what they're asking for. And we explore a measure on the November ballot that aims to strip away some of the executive power of the governor's office. You do not want these funds tied up in partisan bickering at the state legislature. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Those are the voices of janitors at Denver International Airport on Friday. They're chanting, Si se puede, which loosely translated means, yes, we can. The vast majority of 350 janitors agreed to walk off their jobs, and that is just what they did for the day to send a message of unity. Those sounds were recorded by KUNC's Michael DeOanna for a story about the janitors' grievances and their employer's response to it all. And he joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hi, Erin. It seems like it was quite a large demonstration at the airport. What did you hear from janitors while you were there at DIA? Yeah, well, uh, dozens of janitors attended the actual picket after walking off their jobs. They were all wearing purple shirts for the union, the Service Employees International Union Local 105. And what prompted it was that their agreement with their employer, Texas-based flagship facility services, expired last week. And negotiations for a new contract, they floundered. I asked janitor Luis Gonzalez of Aurora how he felt to go on strike. Here's a little of my conversation with him. We're struggling paycheck to paycheck every day, you know. It used to be a great job to work. Now it's bad job. You work full time? Yes, we do. And so have you ever gone on strike before? No, this is the first time we go on strike. I've been working for the airport for 10 years. And how does it feel to go on strike? It feels great. Feels great if we we show the city that we are united and we're strong employees, you know. So if they don't give us what we want, this is what is gonna happen. Passengers are not gonna be happy because the bathrooms are not gonna be clean, the concourse are not gonna be clean, the train station, uh, the plaza, all that is not gonna be clean. That's a sound of empowerment I'm hearing from that janitor. Yeah, Luis Gonzalez and his colleagues lost a day of pay to make their point. And this is the largest strike of of its kind in the region involving janitors in maybe a generation, according to the union. I should point out that this is an incredibly diverse group of workers, immigrants, different religions, a range of ages, all united by the fact that they live on extremely tight budgets. So I asked Gonzalez if he felt 
a little scared to go out on a limb and take on his bosses and a big company like Flagship Facility Services, which has um, cleaning contracts around the country. But Gonzalez told me he felt empowered because he was surrounded by his colleagues. The union voted 99 percent in support of a strike if push came to shove like it did. Mm. Now, what is it exactly that janitors want? Yeah, on top of their list is something so many people in Colorado need right now, given rising housing, food, and transportation costs, and that's better pay. The union told me employees make roughly $17 an hour, but some janitors told me they were making even less than that. So underline roughly, and I'm not privy to the union's inner negotiations, but I'm told that flagship made an offer of a raise and that it was too modest from the union's point of view. Here's Local 105 Union President Ron Ruggiero, who said that janitors have been considered essential at the airport through all the tough months since the coronavirus pandemic first hit in March of 2020. During this entire 18, 19 months we're in, they've been called heroes by political leaders, business leaders, everybody. And what these contract negotiations are about is this workforce and these workers are like, We need to be treated like heroes. We need to be treated like essential workers. And so, yeah, obviously pay is a huge issue. Workload is an issue. But fundamentally, it's about those things are about respect. Um, And that's that's what led to this. We, you know, they have not gotten where we need where they need to get in terms of these negotiations. And ultimately, what led to today's strike. Janitors, he added, are burnt out and stretched, and uh, he said there's a need for more janitors to be hired, ad- additional equipment, and that he hoped that flagship would sit down and listen to workers' demands after the demonstration on Friday. I have a ton of optimism that everyone's going to understand, flagship and everyone else on the other side is going to understand that like the, this, these workers are serious, they're fed up, they're angry, and fundamentally, again, they feel disrespected. And, you know, the other thing I would just mention is the things that we're bargaining over, it's not just good for these workers. It's actually good for the airport and the entire community here and everyone that flies through this airport. Because when you have high quality trained staff who have enough staff to do the work uh, and there's not a ton of turnover, they're going to do a better job. And, you know, clean, a clean and sanitized airport is always critical. So it sounds like they're asking for better pay, more equipment to do their jobs, more people to be hired so they're not so burned out. And really, Michael, to be supported and respected for the work they do, which uh, I imagine has been even busier and, and more hectic throughout the pandemic. What did the folks over at Flagship have to say about all of this? Well, they certainly didn't use the word optimism as the union did in expressing their view of events. A short statement uh, that Flagship corporate headquarters sent to me expressed disappointment that the union turned down what they dubbed their final offer. Flagship said it hopes the union will reconsider and added that without janitors, it could still meet its responsibilities to keep the airport clean. To that end, I'm told uh, temporary workers were cleaning the airport on Friday, but, you know, that's all moot because janitors returned to their jobs on Saturday. Well, where does this leave everything? Janitors still don't have a contract. So the bottom line is that there's still an impasse. And janitors told me that they are prepared to strike again until their demands are resolved. Right. Well, I know you'll keep us up to speed on what happens next. KUNC's Michael DeOana, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. 
Ballots for the November 2nd election will be mailed to registered voters as early as this weekend. In addition to local measures, there are three statewide ballot questions for voters to decide. We're going to spend the next few days going through them, starting with Amendment 78. Colorado Republicans spent the last legislative session trying to strip Governor Jared Polis of the broad emergency powers he's used to lead the state through the COVID-19 pandemic. But with Democrats in control at the state house, the effort didn't gain traction. Now conservatives are hoping voters will approve a plan to make the executive branch a little less powerful. KUNC Scott Franz has more. Last spring, with a stroke of a pen and a late-night email, Governor Jared Polis announced his plan to spend a billion dollars of coronavirus relief funding on public schools. Republicans were enraged, as were some Democrats, who felt they should have a say in things. Backers of Amendment 78 still haven't gotten over it. Just having that ability to spend that much money, a billion dollars, Uh, Without that normal process, I think we give anybody pause. Michael Fields is a conservative activist and author of the ballot measure. And think about, you know, you might agree with this governor. What do you think about the next governor having that power? Governors can legally spend emergency money like COVID relief without any input from state lawmakers, who typically only meet for four months out of the year. They're called custodial funds. Amendment 78 would change the state constitution to require lawmakers to sign off on how every penny is spent. So that means there's a public hearing. There are multiple legislators from around the state being involved in that process. You do not want these funds tied up in partisan bickering at the state legislature. But Scott Wasserman thinks it would lead to bad spending decisions. He leads a liberal-leaning financial research group in Denver. Ultimately, what it'll do is is reduce people's confidence in, in the state getting business done. Wasserman also filed a campaign finance complaint against a group that donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to support the measure saying it should reveal its donors. It is ironic that an organization that does not want to be transparent is talking about the need for transparency. Nonpartisan researchers at the Capitol do not know how much custodial funds would be impacted. In addition to emergency funds, passage of Amendment 78 would also give state lawmakers the final word on spending for legal settlements, transportation funds, and even gifts to colleges and universities. Can you imagine how much longer and more technical the process will be if they now have to allocate and appropriate every single custodial dollar. And that's a concern for some in a state where wildfires, road-crushing mudslides, and other emergencies pop up when the legislature is out of session. Financial analysts estimate they would have to spend an extra $1 million annually for lawmakers to take on the new responsibilities. Fields thinks it could be done without the gridlock Wasserman fears. They can give power back to the governor, for example, and say, look, this amount of money, if it comes in for an emergency, you can go and spend that, or they can come back for a a special session. Lawmakers passed a bipartisan law last year requiring governors to give them regular updates on how emergency dollars are being spent. But some Republicans, including Representative Hugh McKean of Loveland, want to go further. He led the efforts to scale back Governor Polis's emergency powers. There is a necessity to bring the legislature in to do its job, which is to craft the laws and rules for the state. McKean says Amendment 78 would also end what he calls slush funds that get spent without any public input. 
As an example, he points to the state health department spending a $68 million legal settlement from automaker Volkswagen for its role in an emissions scandal. And in the end, some of that money went to pay for car chargers in places like the Target parking lot right here in Loveland. Um, there haven't been any cars charging at the Target car charging station since it was built. And so a lot of people are asking, well, hold on, who made the decision to spend those dollars in that way? And of course, the legislature didn't. There was no organized opposition to Amendment 78 when the state voter guide was mailed out. But legislative analysts have heard concerns from the governor's office and the attorney general. Months before conservatives gathered more than 100,000 signatures to get it on the ballot, Governor Polis was already dismissing attempts to rein in his emergency powers. It's a good, thoughtful discussion in a democracy. I mean, if you're going to go that route, you'd need to have a full-time legislature. There's no question. Our, our legislature is a, a part-time legislature. Many folks don't know that. They have other jobs. Because it would make changes to the Constitution, the amendment to give lawmakers more control over spending would have to pass with at least 55% of voters supporting it. I'm Scott Franz. Scott Wasserman and other Amendment 78 opponents have filed a lawsuit aiming to remove the question from the November ballot. They say it shouldn't have qualified because initiatives in odd-year elections must deal with the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, or TABOR. A hearing is scheduled for this Wednesday in a Denver district court. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. September was National Recovery Month, and according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, the designation is meant to support substance addiction treatment and promote the voices of a proud recovery community. But not all substance abuse treatment programs look alike. Here in this state, the Colorado Health Network, or CHN, takes a less traditional person-first approach, rather than solely focusing on encouraging clients to enter rehabilitation centers and quit altogether. CHN is committed to helping clients reach the goals they set for themselves, prioritizing harm reduction and safer use practices, such as using clean needles. Here to talk more about what harm reduction looks like is Prevention Services Director for the Colorado Health Network, Matthew Fisher. Uh, Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by a graduate intern for CHN and social work student at Colorado State University, Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So to start, Matthew, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a bit about the field of harm reduction overall. What exactly does that mean for those of us who aren't familiar with it? Um, what services do you offer and how is this approach different from, say, a rehabilitation center? Well, to start, we call our programs harm reduction programs, but everyone uses harm reductions, uh, harm reduction to a more or less extent. When you go to the dentist, those are harm reduction conversations about flossing more when we drive cars and we talk about wearing a seatbelt and you know not being distracted driving, that is all harm reduction. So harm reduction isn't necessarily unique to um, our conversation today, but how we use uh, harm reduction in the context of our work is that we do meet the client where they are. We're always working with a client to see in which ways can we reduce potential harm. Uh, that doesn't mean that every client is experiencing harm, um, it's just always having a conversation with a client, just, you know, assessing where they are, what their goals are, and helping them meet those goals, either to reduce harm or provide more education uh, around what's going on in their in their life. 
And Rebecca, uh, how did you become interested in the work of the Colorado Health Network? How did you first get involved? Would you tell us a bit about the journey that led you there? Sure. Um, So for the longest time, I thought I was going to follow in um, my mother's footsteps and be a doctor. So I was volunteering at her clinic, um, a local doctor's office in um, Fort Collins, And um, a lot of what I did there was work with the Suboxone Clinic, which is um, medication-assisted addiction treatment. And all the while, while I was volunteering there, I had this really isolating secret that I didn't want to share with anyone and that no one knew about. I was using um, intravenous, so injection cocaine pretty regularly. Um, I would say I was addicted um, and there's just a lot of stigma and shame attached to drug use, particularly injection drug use. So this went on for quite a while without me telling anyone. Um, But while I was at this clinic, I saw the work of what the social workers were doing and how they really were able to connect with the patients. And I thought that that was really powerful. So I kind of switched trajectories um, into social work right around the time that I was um, starting to begin my recovery journey. Um, I've been in recovery for about three years now. I got on with Northern Colorado Health Network and um, in, engaged in their syringe access program. And I just loved in interacting with the clients and helping them. Um, so part of my story obviously is, is syringes. I was lucky in that I didn't present as someone with an addiction normally would or what our stereotype is of that. So I was able to get my syringes from the pharmacy and I also had the financial privilege of being able to purchase them. I was able to use in a way where I, there was um, a lower risk of, of infectious disease transmission, um, but not everyone has that luxury. And I just, I love being able to um, engage clients in an otherwise really isolating experience. I wanted to ask uh, about the syringe access program because this is one of the major services that CHN offers. Um, Can you briefly describe the program, Matthew, and, and how and why you offer clean syringes to your clients? Everyone's really attracted to the name syringe access program, but there is so much more that we offer Um, And our staff and our clients would say that too. So we do offer new syringes uh, in addition to all the other supplies um, that that someone might need. And like I said before, we come out of an HIV prevention model. So we're really interested in preventing HIV from from spreading or there being an outbreak of HIV, which comes from reusing supplies or reusing the same syringe. We're also interested in preventing hepatitis C. Um, And so we offer those tests when people come in. Um, So we are able to do a rapid HIV and Hep C uh, test if if people would like. Um, But we also just know time and time again that these programs do prevent the spread of HIV and Hepatitis C. That's not the only thing that that comes with these programs, but that is a major driver of why the CDC and health departments are interested in it. But I think the biggest thing we provide is a safe space for people to come and have an honest conversation about what is going on with them, and that we're a non-judgmental place, and that we can provide education to meet uh, the client where they're at. And if they have certain goals that they're trying to achieve, which may be um, consistent use or reducing use or taking a next step to a to a particular referral, we're there to provide that space as well. We have in-house mental health services. We have in-house case management. But we also have close relationships with other resources in the community. So we're um, this liaison. That, that can connect people to, to the next step if they're, if they're interested in that. We also provide um, naloxone, Narcan, 
and fentanyl test strips, which are really, really important right now in these days and talking about the fentanyl crisis and the overdose crisis that we're, we're experiencing. Right. And I know this harm reduction approach isn't new, but there is so often a great deal of pushback against it. How do you respond to those concerns when you hear them? Yeah, I mean, we we get that a lot and we honor where people are, are coming from and we're happy to provide all the CDC research that has gone into how effective these programs are. We, of course, try to talk with them, but sometimes people are very fixated on that this is a enabling program or an encouraging program. We like to use the parallel that if we give condoms to people, that doesn't actually mean that people are having more sex or they're going to have sex. People are using drugs and um, injecting drugs, and we know that that's happening. We're just the program to go along with that. We aren't. Um, we know that this would exist whether or not we're there. We are talking to Prevention Services Director for the Colorado Health Network, Matthew Fisher, and graduate intern for CHN and social work student at Colorado State University, Rebecca McLaughlin. The field of harm reduction seeks to prioritize uh, safe or safer use. Uh, For those of us who are not familiar with safer use, Rebecca, can you tell us a bit about what that might look like? What are some resources people can use uh, to mitigate the risks of an overdose? Sure. Um, So safer use goes into all kind of dimensions around use, Um, not just overdose. It's about, um, you know, how do you um, like, for example, for injection use, like how do you not get a skin infection or like such as an abscess? Um, You know, how, how can you do it in a cleaner way? You know, we also provide education about what an overdose might look like so that if you're using with someone, when it when does intervention need to happen in in the case of an overdose? Um, that's where the naloxone or Narcan that we provide is really important and training people on how to use that. We also do a lot of trainings around laws and and what is there to protect people that do um, call nine one one to help their overdosing friend. So there's a there's a Good Samaritan law in in Colorado where if you are the individual that calls nine one one and you stay with the person that's overdosing, you won't receive a ticket up to a certain amount of possession of of an illegal drug. So it's it's not great, it's not perfect, but we try to provide. Um, people with as much power and knowledge as possible so that they feel safe keeping themselves and their friends safe. As an example, I experienced an overdose and my friend that I was using with did not contact 911 because he was really concerned about himself getting in trouble and not to say that he was a bad person or that I was a bad person. It's just, it's something that happens with use, particularly injection drug use. So we really just try to arm people with as much knowledge as possible uh, so that when and if that does happen, that they're they're prepared and they can, you know, go into that action mode. It really feels like this approach is so practical and really aims to combat um, stigma and shame. Have you found that to be, you know, productive in your work with uh, CHN and Northern Colorado Health Network? Yeah. Um, on a personal level, um, you know, there was a lot of stigma and shame myself a year ago before I started working here, I would have never come on this radio show. Um, but through working here and and hearing other people's stories, I've become really empowered to share my own. And I think that that's just really what harm reduction is, is empowering people to, 
um, ask for and, and get the, the supplies and the services that, that they need in order to engage in behaviors um, in, a, in a safer way. And, you know, through working here, I've really come to accept the parts of myself that became addicted and, and understand it's a human process. Like addiction does not discriminate. This could happen to anyone. And knowing that just through connection with other people and hearing your stories and hearing the humanity and, and every single person that, that comes through our doors has been a really powerful experience for me. Well, I wanted to wrap up with a question to to both of you. And Matthew, I'll ask you first, for people who maybe feel that they are removed from the world of substance abuse or addiction, what would you want them to know? I think that it's just so that that experience and this experience is so different for, for everyone and that we might have these conceptions or misconceptions about what addiction is and how it looks and how people should be behaving or be in recovery or what they should be doing about it. Um, and just to really take another look at that, that there's not one right way or right answer to, um, you know, for a person's journey, that there are many different ways um, that someone can be, be using or be in recovery. Um, and, it, and it just doesn't look one way or there's not one solution for it. I second everything Matt said. Um, additionally, I think that one of the reasons people get so uncomfortable with the topic of addiction is because, um, a lot of people see a little bit more of themselves, um, in in it than they, they want to, whether it's that, um, you know, third glass of alcohol, you told yourself you weren't going to have over the weekend or, you know, the, the fries that you ordered instead of the side salad. Um, we all have these impulses and we all are human, kind of like what I was speaking to earlier. And I think that that makes people uncomfortable, but I think the way forward is for people to acknowledge and accept those parts of themselves. And that'll make them easier to accept in in other people. We've been talking with Prevention Services Director for the Colorado Health Network, Matthew Fisher, and graduate intern for CHN and social work student at CSU, Rebecca McLaughlin. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Erin. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we continue to explore what's in this year's Blue Book with a closer look at a ballot measure that would help fund education programs by raising taxes on retail marijuana sales. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.